Good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audio book platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Uh, my guest today is journalist and columnist Stephen Petro, whose new book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, was recently featured at Bookmark's Movable Feast. Stephen, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Charlie, it's great to be with you today. So for a lot of us, that event where we met uh, a couple of weeks ago was really sort of our first post or semi-post-COVID public event. I know most of the authors there uh, we're doing an author event for the first time in, in over a year. What was it like for you to, to be there as an author? You know, it was it was my first uh, sort of really public event of, of any kind. And just to describe to people what the room was like, I think there were about 15 tables with 10 individuals at each table. And the 10 authors were sort of circling around like speed dating. <laughs> you know, um, we could have all been super spreaders had there been uh, uh, virus or not vaccines, but what really struck me was people made an effort, people paid to come to this event, which I just thought was so encouraging about books and bookstores and, and what books mean to people. I, I left exhausted. My voice was kind of spent, but I was, um, I was on a high. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really nice to see uh, new authors, to see some familiar faces. Um, and, and for those of you who are listening, Bookmarks is starting to do in-person events again. So, you know, be sure to check out the calendar and, and, and see what's happening. Um, Can so, I just um, throw on an accolade also for Bookmarks? Because yeah. I, had not been, I had not been there before. And, you know, if people do not know that bookstore, it is, it is my dream bookstore. <laughs> uh, the staff is so knowledgeable and nice. And, uh, and it's just, it's a beautiful space um, in yeah. downtown Winston. So. Yeah, it really is. It was... Um, you know, I was the president of Bookmarks when we designed that space, and one of our our driving forces was I've been in so many bookstores where they built a store to sell books, and then as an afterthought, they created a space for authors, and mm -hmm. we wanted to kind of do it almost the other way around, um, so that it was conceived from the very beginning as a gathering place for for authors and, and writers. You succeeded. Um, so all of us have opinions, uh, but only a few of us get to share those opinions on a national stage. Tell us a little bit about how you became a journalist and what in particular drove you towards writing essays and opinion pieces. No, that's, um, that's, a really, that's a really good question. And I, I come from a family where my dad was a journalist and he was a television producer. And I have a niece who's a journalist and she's, uh, she's interning with the Los Angeles Times right now. So maybe it's just genetic. <laughs> she's an opinion writer also. But I've always thought that words can be persuasive and that um, used properly, perhaps we can bridge divides, we can uh, reach out uh, to people. And so that's, I've been doing that one way or another for, for much of my life. I was on the college paper at Duke. Um, I ran the opinion section and I'm an opinion writer for USA Today now, and, and, but also write sort of broader perspective type pieces for, for the Washington Post. And, um, 
and for the New York Times. And, and those, the pieces that are not political though, they are often about trying to resolve some problem of mine. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking this morning, I'd fin I finished recently an essay for the Post that's about grief. And I think the first thing all of us would say was, oh my God, grief, let me, let me run away from that. That's, that's a hard feeling to hold. It hurts. And, uh, and I had several losses during, during the last year, um, during the pandemic, some COVID related, some not. Yeah. And I thought more and more about the nature of grief and in a way though, how it can keep, help keep us connected to those whom we've lost. And um, so that, that essay is really sort of about my trying to come to terms with what grief is, how we might turn it around more to our actual benefit. And, you know, and then I hope that, you know, these topics, these, um, these essays will resonate with readers. Generally they do, though it's always a little bit hard to, you know, predict what the, the public mind will, will devour or like. Yeah. Yeah. So we're having this conversation uh, right at the tail end of, of Pride Month, and you have served in the past as president of the NLGJA. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that and also just sort of about the place of LGBTQ people in in the media world and as that how that's developed in the years that you've been involved in that in that world. Well, I'll give you I'll give you a little um, pronunciation tip because NLGJA is always a little bit hard to roll off the tongue. <laughs> and so um, within the organization, and it's the Association of LGBTQ Journalists, we just call it negligee. <laughs> and and that's that's politically correct if you want to do that too. And um, and I and many years ago, the late Cloris Leachman was doing a benefit, and she got all tongue tied over, and she says let's just call you the LGBTs and, you know, or the BLTs. That was the BLTs. <laughs> and, um, but this is an organization that Roy Ahrens, uh, a journalist um, who had been at the Oakland Tribune, founded in the 1980s when discrimination against gays and lesbians, especially in the workplace, was, was just so onerous. And it was pathbreaking that this, this group could come together and I remember I was at the second convention, I don't remember exactly the year, but suddenly your, your colleagues were starting to come out yeah. and, and we were able to provide a resource for each other in doing that. But our mission was to foster fair and accurate coverage in the news media, which continues to be the organization's um, primary mission. And you know, that, job, that job is never done. We're always, everyone is always seeking you know, fair and accurate coverage in, in, in every way. Um, it's a, it's, it's a group that now is, I think, in its 30th year, and its convention will be in person, I believe, this coming September. And I was, I was honored to be president, national president of it for um, two years and on the board for many, many years. You have a, a 2019 TED Talk in which you call yourself a civilist. What mm -hmm. do you mean by that? And how do you see that identification as having played out both in your personal and professional life? So you don't know the word civilist, Charlie? <laughs> well, I do, but because I watched your TED talk. <laughs> I know. Well, it's obsolete, which is why nobody knows that. First of all, so nobody should feel bad. And uh, so a little background on that. I have, so I've been writing about manners and etiquette and civility for, for many years. And I've done a couple of, of, of books about that. And I did a column for the Washington Post called Civilities. And I began to see how 
this whole notion of, of civility was going off the tracks. And I mean, by that, I mean, we started to talk about it as, well, it's about being nice or it's about being polite or decorous or setting the table properly. Yeah. And that's not what the antecedent of the word civility or civilitas means. It was really the Boy Scout um, motto or mantra, which was thinking about the greater good, the larger community. That was, that was what civility was. And um, as I've written a number of times this year about we, not me, which yeah. is such an essential theme. So uh, yeah, so I, I did do that TED talk in, in early 2019. It's had, um, it, uh, I, I was surprised by um, how many how many times it's been viewed and so on and so forth and um, and, and it's and its legs um, and uh, it you know has continued to foster my thinking you know after this current book that I'm just publishing uh, this month I'm going to be writing again about civility and I think it's the, the the working title is the argument against civility and it kind of goes to part of what I was saying now how we've come to understand it and also how the notion of civility has come to stand in the way of social change. Yeah. You know, and by that, if we think about people who may be protesting out on the streets, well, that's that's not very civil. Uh, you should be, you know, acting better, acting within the lines, and that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. There seems to me in in our public discourse to have to be less and less civility in the in sort of the older usage of the word. Uh, and even in private discourse, if social media is anything to go by, it, it is often fairly absent. How as a society do we reclaim that? Do we restore that uh, level of respect? Well, I think level. I think respect is is a big part of that equation, mm -hmm. um, as is listening and uh, and learning. And you know, we're kind of deficient on on all of those. I'm not one to blame social media because while you know all of these platforms are tools that are available to us and we engage with them, you know, we individuals are the ones who are making various decisions along the way and posting and tweeting and, and TikToking this and that. So you know, part of it is we need to own the decisions that we make every day. And I, I you know, I often say, and this is sincere, you know, I am far from a perfect person when it comes to my behaviors, you know, you know, being civil. The one one practice that I have um, tried to, to do is that when I'm in a situation and it's a challenge and my initial reaction would be to use a sharp word or to lash out. I did grow up in New York City. That is part of my DNA. Um, I take what's called by some of my meditation teachers, a sacred pause, which is just a short breath. And I think, is there a choice to be made in what I'm going to do or say, and what is the kinder way? And then I try to do that. It's not that I always succeed in that, but I try to do that. So that's one way I think to restore it. I, I think another is that the leadership in, in this country and around the world, and I don't mean just the political leadership, I mean really, the people who we kind of look up to who take up space in the media, you know, they are role models. And, and then that there's kind of the trickle down theory of that. So I think if those individuals also start made, started making the choices about kindness, we would kind of see a viral replication of that um, throughout society. Yeah. And then we need just um, a little bit of luck and a prayer here too. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about your recent book. It's called um, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. So it's title is pretty self-explanatory, but tell us about, about the book and about how it came to be. Yeah, I love that juxtaposition, juxtaposition, Charlie, because we're talking about civility. And this is like the snarkiest title. And, um, you know, the subtitle is even worse. I don't have, I don't have the book right in front of me, but it's a... Uh, it's oh, like, I, can, I can read you the subtitle. It's right. a highly judgmental, unapologetically honest accounting of all the things our elders are doing wrong. There you exactly. go. <laughs> Written by the civilist. <laughs> right. So this book came about a little bit after I turned 50 and after my parents um, were in their 70s. And I started, as a journalist, I started taking down notes and keeping a list. I keep tons of lists. You know, I know we're on a podcast here, but you can see this. I've got my list, my list, my, I've got all these lists. And so the, the list was things I would do differently when I, when I got older. And, you know, among them, I would stop driving when I started hitting things. Mm -hmm. I would pick up the throw rug so that my spouse wouldn't be falling over them. I would accept a little bit of dependence to create um, a larger window for more independence and, and so on and so forth. There, there were hundreds on my list by the time I finished my scribblings. And then that became a New York Times essay. And what surprised me was I would say two to 300 people sent me their lists. Mm. So it suddenly became clear to me this was actually a thing. I wasn't um, in isolation. And what people were trying to do really was let off some steam, but also uh, create a path as this next generation gets older about how we might make better decisions for ourselves and for our loved ones. And that's what, that's what the book is essentially about, as well as, uh, a way or a, a way to talk about some of these issues that are really hard to talk about. Illness, disability, um, death, dying, not being able to hear, um, sexual dysfunction. And so, and, I, and people say it's a funny book and those topics don't sound that funny, but I do try to bring humor to them as a way to take down the temperature and show people, yes, we can talk about these things and it will be okay. Yeah, and it's so it's a deeply, you know, honest and open book about yourself and your own experience with your parents, with your own aging. Um, and so one of the things to me that that comes through here is um is voice that that I, I really hear your voice. And and I'm interested to hear you talk about sort of the role of voice in your essays. And is the voice we hear like is that the same voice I would hear if we were just having a beer outside of bookmarks, or or do you kind of craft a, I don't want to say a character, but a, but a voice that, that fits better for your actual writing. So, you know, Charlie, they say about you, you're a very good interviewer. You're a very good interviewer. That's, that's, that, that is a great question. And um, I'm going to tease it apart a little bit. So I do write in a very personal way. And it's hard for me because I'm, I'm basically an introvert and I'm shy and I have a zone of privacy which you would not know from what I've written, but I kind of have created this alter ego and his name is Stephen Petro also, but he's the one who gets to go write that. And he's the one who has to talk about those issues and, 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 you know, and reply to people. And then I just kind of like pretend that I'm this other, this other like lesser quieter Stephen over here. Uh, and so when people come up to me and they say, oh, you know, that was such a brave piece that you wrote about talking about suffering from depression, 
Yeah, then I have to, I do have to be this Stephen, um, the real Stephen, because they are talking to me and, and that is hard. Um, but that is also part of the challenge that I've, that I've given to myself. Um, and as to voice, there have been times when I have tried to write where I'm not as honest as I wind up being, and it just doesn't sound like me. And I, I'm aware of that. And so then I go back and I say, okay, you need to be more transparent and you also need to use, you know, some of the ways that you have learned how to communicate with people. And uh, you were being some of that and um, sometimes a, a quip here and there, but I'm, I'm essentially trying for authenticity. And when I hit, I know when I hit that note, I kind of can feel it inside. So you said a lot of the ideas from, for the topics in this book came from these lists that, that readers sent you. Mm -hmm. How do you see your relationship with, with your readers? I mean, when you're writing, are you imagining somebody sitting there holding a newspaper or holding a book? Do you see it as a conversation? Do you see it as a, as a lecture? What, what, what's your relationship to readers in your head as you work? So for, so both for this book and also for my columns, I often solicit um, responses from readers on Twitter and Facebook. And so I will pose various questions uh, and then, you know, there will be dozens, if not hundreds of responses. And, and you know, so for, for this book, you know, I, I, I remember asking, because there's a chapter about um, the importance of pre-writing uh, your obituary so that you can, so you can get your own story right. And those people in your family who don't know proper grammar, they're not gonna get their hands all over it. And uh, I had talked to like one or two people who had done this. And then when I posted that uh, on social media, my God, there were like so many different variations of, of this yeah. and different voices, different backgrounds. And, and part of me reaching out that way is also, you know, I am a white male, I am 63. I'm always trying to bring in different perspectives and increase the diversity of voices in, in my work. And that has proven to, to, be, to be a useful tool to do that. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that's implicit in, in the title of this book is that we will somehow know when we reach that magic thing called old age. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what does it mean to be old and, and how do we define that for ourselves? Yeah, um, I don't. I don't know how old you are, and I don't know if you want to say how old you are. We, are, I think, you and I are pretty close to the same age. I am uh, about to turn fifty-nine. Congratulations! <laughs> um, next year you will be a sexagenarian, and that is That's one right. of my that is one of my favorite words. Yeah, and if only because it has the word sex in it, and it means <laughs> it has nothing to do with sex, or it may, but the word itself doesn't. Um, and now I forgot your question. Well, it was just about well, how, how do we know, uh, how do we define what it means to be old, you know, because when you're writing a book about what to do when you get old. So maybe being forgetful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the hard disk is full. You know, being old in this culture is such a construct. And we are told, you know, at 60, sorry, Charlie, or 65, like you automatically become old and, and you may you may qualify for Medicare at that point, you know, you may be expected to retire, but you don't change overnight. 
And there's, but there's this prevailing notion that, that people do. And I, when I woke up on the morning of my 60th birthday, I thought, am I gonna be the same person I was when I was 59? No. And so it's a very subjective. And, and those people who do not feel old, regardless of the number I found in my research and through studies, are those who stay engaged with their families, with their friends, who have passions about things. They don't necessarily need to you know, stay in a job, but to stay connected and to find things that excite them and, and that move them. Those seem to be some of the most important elements. And I have um, you know, many role models in the book of, of people I would not want to emulate. And I have several you know, whom I would want to emulate. And you know, to a T, they also understood that being older is not a bad thing. Yeah. It is another life stage and like every life stage, there are there's wisdom in it there's pain in it and, and then eventually you move on to the next life stage and that it is different than illness we often conflate old with ill and they're actually very distinct things and yes illness is challenging and generally i would say illness is is bad if i'm going to be binary about things this I, I want to talk a little bit about how how you structure a book like this. So this is a this is really a collection of personal essays that are tied together by a theme. So you know a reader might think, well, you can just stick them in whatever order you want, but that's not what you've done. How how do you decide how to how to take a stack of essays and create a book out of that? Again, a very um, appropriate question because I was. I had a hard time structuring the book. And let me, let me just say how it wound up being structured. There are three sections. The first section is stupid things I won't do today. But there are things we can act upon sooner than later. The second section is stupid things I won't do tomorrow. That's kind of for the next set of years. And then the third section, which is a smaller one, are, is stupid things I won't do at, quote, the end. And that's um, sort of preparing for, for death and dying. But I have to say that my co-editor, my co-writer and I, Roseanne Henry, um, we looked at many different ways to sort of create the narrative structure and we tried different ways and and, and for a while there we had these there are 43 essays we had 43 jigsaw pieces and we were like forever like moving them around on, on the map and finally the narrative arc kind of um came through here and in the final pass of editing we put the pieces in place and then uh, sort of knitted them together in in a way that they kind of they kind of built on each other um, but it was it was probably the most challenging part of writing of writing and putting together the book. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, you must have that voice in your head, too, while you're doing that, that says, no matter what I do, some some readers are going to skip around and read this essay here and that. I said, you know, so but I, I kind of in, in a way, it can almost be a choose your own adventure sort of book. You know, I mean, I, I really like the way you've structured it. Um, but every now and then I would see a topic coming up and go, oh, I, kinda, I want to see what that one is, you know, and then I would go back. And so uh, I, I feel like it, it, it can work either way. Um, but, you know, it, I also find that, you know, in, in people that have read sort of early versions of this, it's a very useful book to talk um, between generations. Yeah. And actually, when um, when I was at the the movable feast, and there were movable, there were, there were sort of multiple generations at those oh, yeah. tables. And I could see how the book was fostering that. And so, you know, if you're having, you know, there are a couple of chapters about a memory loss, dementia, you know, perhaps that is an issue in your family. You may want to go read a little bit about that. Not that it's an instruction manual, but um, 
their stories there that they're telling. And then at another time, you know, go to the section on, you know, why you should never call your hair again. And, you know. So there, there are plenty of moments in this book, and we touched on this a minute ago, but I want to, I want to delve a little deeper that where I just, I would just laugh out loud in my, if I'm in the room with my wife, when I'm reading, she always goes, what? And I was like, well, I have to read you the whole page to work up to that moment. Um, you know, I talked with Paul Rudnick earlier this month about writing humor. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you talk about how you use humor in your writing without, you managed to do it without losing that sort of um, serious edge in the message. And yet you, you, you get the humor in there as well. How, how do you pull that off? You know, I, I, I don't really have an easy answer to that. Um, I find it either comes sort of in my voice or out of a situation or it doesn't. I've, I've long ago learned I cannot force it. Uh, you know, much of the so-called humor, I think, is puts me as the butt of the joke. And uh, so I, I mentioned that chapter on hair coloring. Uh, I had, I had, when I was um, president of NLGJA, the Journalists Association, I was at a benefit with Diane Sawyer, the newscaster. And she's a beautiful platinum blonde who's also incredibly intelligent. And she said to me, you know, the secret, um, the secret for anchors who get older is um, they get blonder. And <laughs> so, you know, listen to Diane Sawyer, I go off to a hair colorist and I become like this, as my friend Vince said, I look like a trashy secretary from Staten Island. It's horrible. And then I go through this detox and uh, so I am I am the butt of, of that joke about trying to let go of some of the superficial things, which we all, I think, feel and start to become more comfortable with who we are inside. Um, uh, yeah. And sometimes sometimes. Um, yeah, I, I can point fingers at others, but I think that's I think that's less generous and then less funny. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things you vow not to do is to become a Luddite. And I'll say for myself, I try to limit the number of times, you know, per month that I say to my children, well, when I was a kid, we only had four channels of TV and we had to get off the couch to go change. Um, but in a world where everybody under 30 just seems to kind of understand how everything works, um, how do we help those people in a generation who are digital immigrants to have technology working for them rather than against them to feel like it's not a, a battle but it's actually a tool right and it and it is a tool and and the reason we want to use these tools is to stay connected um and so during the pandemic so my niece caroline she's she's um she's a duke and we would go to dinner every once in a while and you know how they had those um qr menus all of a sudden no more paper menus and you had to yeah, use your phone yeah. You know, I had sort of marginal success with that. Um, but then whenever I would meet Caroline, I'd be so apprehensive that I would become like the old uncle who can't even use his, you know, his phone to like open the menu and that she would have to tell me how, you know, I, that I would practice because I wanted, I wanted to step up in, in that way. Uh, you know, I also write, I think humorously about you know, that I will not double space anymore, you know, when I so-called type. And for those of us who learned to type on a typewriter, we learned to double space because you had to, to see where the, the new sentence began. And on a computer, you don't. But it is one of the clearest ways to see who is older. And 
that's not bad, but sort of the lesson in that is we need to find ways to retrain ourselves out of old behaviors yeah. into newer ones, uh, both for practical reasons and for reasons that we sort of stay in the swim and stay in the swim of, of conversation. And that's, you know, that's how we use technology, you know, on our side, not to let it intimidate us, um, which, which it easily can. And I don't suggest that anyone here needs to become a computer programmer or, you know, or my next Apple buddy, you know, he's 31. He's, he's, got, a, he's got a great job until he turns 40, I guess. <laughs> you quote um, another writer saying, the older you get, the more people will want to pretend you are invisible. Don't let them. Can you, can you talk about this issue of invisibility among the elderly and, and what we can all do to curb that? Well, I'm gonna take the word elderly out of your sentence if I okay. might, because it's largely a problem after people turn 50, which, you know, which, is, which is now considered midlife by demographers and midlife can go up to 70. But with, a, with this focus on, on youth, in, in culture and in media, you kind of you kind of go over that bridge to to fifty, and you start to disappear. And one of them, so that's that's bad enough when you're disappearing in other people's eyes. But there are a number of studies also show that as individuals, we start to accept the notion that we're becoming invisible. And this is what's called. You know, by scholars, um, everyday ageism or casual ageism, and the notion that getting older is is bad, and therefore we're sort of becoming lesser. And there's some real um, concrete manifestations of internalizing those attitudes. We'll get sicker more often, heart to be heart to, um, disease and diabetes. We'll have more mental health issues, and those who think that aging is, is bad will live shorter lives up to seven and a half years shorter, which makes it equivalent to becoming a smoker in a way. So it's really important to become aware of those attitudes. You know, I stopped giving those birthday cards that, um, you know, they're ha ha funny, but they make fun of you for being, you know, for being whatever age you are and like you're one foot out of the grave. You know, I, I've been getting these memes the last couple of years, you know, one that, one that struck me was, here's a new TV tray and it's an older fellow and he's taken the toilet um, seat and um, part of it's around his neck and then the toilet seat covers his tray and like, that's not funny. Yeah. You know, and, but um, people are trying to make fun out of that. And so we have to stop with the jokes because uh, as much as I have a sense of humor, Age and ageism is one of the few things that we still joke about. We don't joke about race. We don't joke, joke about gender, gender identity. You know, we've, you know, not that we're 100% by far on those, but we've kind of learned they're not inherently funny. They're serious issues there. And so they're serious issues with ageism too. You call yourself a perennial. Um, and I assume that does not mean that you are a daffodil exactly, but what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I love all daffodils, um, but what I what I mean by that is we wear these hats. You know, I'm a boomer. My parents were greatest generation. You know, my nieces are X Y Z millennial, and these are labels that that divide us and make for different experiences. And so there is this this notion of perennial, which I did not come up with, but I think is a beautiful one. 
these are these are flowers. These are people who bloom and bloom and bloom no matter what their age, and they stay bright and colorful, and 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 radiate happiness. And uh, so, there's no age qualification. You can be a you can be a perennial at 30 or 90. And I think you know the more we sort of strive for that, the more we become one, and the more we'll have shared interactions and and that kind of engagement that I hope that that we'll find and, and less loneliness too. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite headings in your book is called, um, and, and maybe I like this because it's advice I think I've taken at least since high school mm -hmm. um, that I won't limit myself to friends, my own age. Yeah. Um, and I said, when I read that, I started sort of cataloging the, the people who I spend the most time with who are most important in my lives. And like, none of them are my age. <laughs> you know, they're all either, I mean, one of them is five and some of them are, you know, um, much older and so I, I that seems to me again to sort of tie into that notion of the perennial to to you know not sort of pigeonhole yourself by age uh very, with the people who who mean things to you in your life very much so and so i've had friends who have been older than me older than me by by decades even and friends who are younger and it's really kind of this this two-way bridge um my friend Denise Kessler, whom I do write about in the book, she was about, I think, 30 years older than me. And she purposely cultivated perennials to, uh, to, to be in her life. It was a good strategy because she worried that she would be the last woman standing if she survived, uh, and she, she was. So she had this coterie of, of, of friends. And then in, in, in the media and journalism world, it's been very, very helpful to me in, in practical ways, but also in again expanding how i see the world and, and certainly from you know from different perspectives you know that whole okay boomer thing where boomers were being blamed um you know for all the problems of, of the world a year or two ago you know many of those millennials are right we did we have created a world that is just rife with problems and we have to take some responsibility for that and uh so it's 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 a challenge, but I think the more we can talk and the more we can listen to each other again, uh, we will make those bridges. Yeah. You you write about um, your scar from cancer surgery, and that made me think about my own scars from cancer surgery. And I had this, I had a robotic procedure, so I just have these six little tiny things. Mm -hmm. I look down there and I go, really, is is that all? Is sort of my my response after that. But you quote Cormac McCarthy, and, and I'd love for you to elaborate on how this quote um, sort of has both a physical and emotional context. And the quote is, scars have the strange power to remind us that our past is real. Well, first of all, Charlie, I hope you're in good health. I am, thank you. And um, yeah, I, uh, so I had cancer, I had several cancer surgeries in my twenties. Yeah. And I'm not gonna do a Lyndon Johnson for you now. I know, but if I, <laughs> I tell you the one that is, you know, on a podcast here, I can open up my shirt because no one's. Gonna see it. I have like um, I have like a fourteen-inch scar, yeah. and especially when I was younger, I was very self-conscious about this. Uh, it seemed to shout disfigurement, um, disability to me, and it took me a very long time. It took probably half of my lifetime to come to accept that. First of all, it was okay, and. I didn't have to dress in the dark anymore. And when I was, you know, and when I was meeting people and starting to date or be intimate, I, I didn't have to wear you know, a t-shirt or, or whatever because I was that self-conscious. Um, 
But then I came to see, it, it is what, what McCarthy said. This, this, is, this symbolizes my past. This symbolizes where I have come from and, and where I am. And I almost see, or I do see the scores that I have now as uh, evidence of, of resilience. And, um, you know, and we all have, we all have some scars, whether they're internal or external. And so I think, you know, finding ways to embrace the whole of we are, and then building on that and building on our strengths uh, is, is how we will continue to face the next set of challenges that inevitably come up. And so, yeah, I can, um, I can now fully disrobe in front of a mirror, not that I'm a narcissist, and um, and 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 be fine with that. And uh, and um, so, yeah. I think for me, as as a writer of fiction, my my scars, whether they be physical or emotional or any other kind, are they're part of my story. And I, you know, my life is all about telling stories. So that, you know, what you, you know, I don't want to deny that 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 was a chapter. You know. Um, if there's, yeah. one, if there's one essay in this book, I think that sort of sums aging up for me and is the one that that maybe I'm the most concerned about, not only in my own life, but in the life of people that I know, um, it's, I won't refuse to change my ways. I mean, that seems to me to be almost an umbrella that covers a lot of, a lot of the things you're talking about. And one of the things I've found is, um, for me and for some people I know, that it's kind of been especially hard to break habits in this emerging from the pandemic period, because we kind of created this new way of living and convinced ourselves, you know, this is what we need to do to, to stay safe and to stay healthy. Um, and and now we're and we sort of that sort of happened over a period of a little bit of time. And now we're being told, well, you know, now create a whole new set of habits, but you're not quite sure what they ought to be. Um, what, what are some of the tools we can use to be, to help ourselves not become so set in our ways well i'll tell you i'll tell you um two ways that have worked for me mm -hmm. and the first came from a yoga class that i that i go to fairly regularly or i did go to fairly regularly and uh our instructor amy decided one day this was going to be the theme and she sat down in a different part of the room. And then that meant all of us had to sit down in a different part of the room. <laughs> Suddenly I realized I had to look left rather than right. And I found this just so discombobulating. And then she changed up the order of the practice and, and how we did things. And so I just couldn't rely on habit and instinct. I had to be more present and I had to listen to what she was telling us to do. And so the goal of that is to take the practice off the mat and into life. And so then I started purposely trying to mix, mix things up for myself and something as simple as uh, I used to go out of the, uh, the house with my dog and go left. And then I had this whole route and I would do the same circle. Well, then I went out and went to the right and, and meandered and things looked differently. I had different encounters with people. It kind of just started to like break away some of, some of the, the rut that I was feeling. And, and then, you know, from there, I was able to go on to, you know, other, other sort of more larger and more concrete ways to, um, to deepen this. But I, I saw the benefits of doing things different, of not staying stuck. And that allowed me the confidence then to try to try to go a little bit further, to try to go further. Yeah. You write about, I mean, well, I think one of the things that we all think about both in terms of whether it's for our parents or for ourselves, 
um, is when are you going to stop driving? And I, I think in some ways this is not as big an issue as it used to be because now we have Uber, we have Lyft, we have we have other tools that that we can use. Mm-hmm. But knowing how to gracefully stop doing things that we shouldn't be doing anymore, I think is a is a huge issue. Um, and I can remember watching this in my in my parents and in my grandparents. How do we give up the things that we should give up without having that feeling as we're doing it? Well, you know, it's all downhill from here because I'm not going to be doing X, Y, Z anymore. I think that may be the hardest practice, the hardest suggestion in this book. And when I first when I first wrote that chapter, it's it's about it's about my mother, and she was a woman who prized her independence. And when she turned eighty, she got a fiery red sports car, and you know, and she's a woman who had scoliosis; she could barely see over the steering wheel. But she was so identified with that car. And then she started hitting all these things and the car was dented. And, you know, we talked with her and then she said, well, it's the car's fault. And she traded it in for a different car and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and I recognized that one, she, she was unsafe to drive, but two, this was her connection to, you know, her life. And there was Uber and there was Lyft and she had, she had children who would drive her, but it was so much a part of her independence. And, uh, and so one of one of the stories here is my siblings and I, we decide we're gonna sort of have an intervention with mom. Here she's 82 maybe. And I'm elected because I'm the eldest and we have, and I sort of make the argument and being very respectful about her independence and the fact that she's the mom and we're the kids. And she, she's a very, she was a very regal woman. She sat back and she said, well, thank you all very much for your consideration. And then she used the F word and told us to get lost. Yeah. And, um, uh, and then this was New York State. I turned her in, yeah. and um, and she lost her license. And she forever blamed it on the last person whose car she hit, which was good for me. We kept it as a family secret. But it was that was a, that was a hard thing. And so you know, sure. you know, I'm trying to vow to do things better myself. And uh, you know, that will certainly be very present. And she left me when when after she died, you know, sort of all of the records around her driving and the citation. And it was as though she had left me this message, you know, pay attention to this or someone else is going to do to you what you did to me. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, but that's been the hardest part of, of this time, trying to implement what's on my list. Yeah. And I think that's, um, you know, if anything, the the message of this book is that we can we can learn so much from the previous generation, both from what they have done right and what maybe they have examples they have given us of things that haven't worked out so well. Um, if if we just pay attention and think about it, well, we like to end um, every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same ten questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words. You got a little preview of these at Movable Feast uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and hopefully they'll give our readers some insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What what word do you love to work into your writing? I'm going to take liberty and say it's this phrase, others are not so sure. Uh, And that's often a bridge that I use. And I used it in a USA Today column over the weekend again. Yeah. 
what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Uh, unique, which is I'm sure not a very unique answer. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> where's, where's your favorite place to write? Uh, my favorite place to write is at, at home and at my desk, wherever that may be. Yeah. And where could you never write? I need to write in a place that does not have sort of external stimulation. So I can't write in a cafe or a bookstore or sort of anywhere in public. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I am what is called an M dash queen. I love <laughs> my M dashes. Me too. <laughs> and I know the difference between an M and an N dash. <laughs> <laughs> and we could we could have a whole conversation on M and N dashes, um, but but we'll keep that to ourselves. Um, but yes, I'm I'm with you on both of those. <laughs> What's the first book you remember reading? I devoured the Hardy Boys series. Oh yeah, and you know, very sort of middle middle brow, but I'll just say those boys were a form of masculinity that. Um, that I was trying to emulate. And I think I was anxious about my gayness although I wouldn't have put that word to myself at that point. What are you reading now? Well, I brought them along. I'm reading um, The Prettiest Star by Carter Stickles. And he was with us in, in Winston. Yep. This is a beautiful, beautiful novel about AIDS and family in the 1980s. And then I'm reading my friend Scott um, Ellsworth's new book, The Groundbreaking in American City and its Search for Justice. It's about Tulsa. Yeah. And um, uh, that's a very different book and a, and a very powerful book. So I like to, to read two at once. What, what book would you like to have written? I have always wanted to write a biography and I wanted to write about the life of Emily Post. Mm. And, um, and that was written, Amer Emily Post, <laughs> The Mistress of American Manners. It's a, be it's a beautiful full length biography. and raises many of the um, conundrums in her life. Yeah. You, you may have already answered this question, but what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Yeah, I think it will be a full-length biography now because, uh, you know, I sort of see a time horizon and, and those books can be particularly time-consuming to do the research and write. Look at, look at Robert Caro, uh, you know, I hope he gets to the end yeah, yeah. <laughs> before he gets to the end. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I am fortunate. I hear a lot from my readers. You know, many of them hate what I write, but I am always so pleased when a reader tells me in some way I've helped to help them to see the world a little bit differently. And that, that gives me great pleasure. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been, been Stephen Petro, whose book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old, is available wherever books are sold. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. 
For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to best-selling author Matt Haig. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.